be submitted. We'll hear argument next to number 001072, Leonard Edelman versus Lynchburg College. Mr. Schnapper. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The relation back rule for verification under Section 1601.12b is a proper exercise of the authority granted to the EEOC under Section 713 of Title VII to promulgate procedural regulations. The regulation is consistent with the language of Section 706. Title VII requires that a charge be verified, and the statute also requires that a charge be filed within 180 or 300 days of the act of discrimination. But as Judge Ludig correctly observed below, these two statutory requirements are independent of each other. Specifically, Section 706E1 establishes deadlines of 180 or 300 days, but it applies those deadlines only to when, quote, a charge must be filed. Section 706E1 does not purport to establish a deadline for verification. Conversely, Section 706B requires verification, but it contains no deadline for doing so. That omission is particularly significant because other requirements which are contained in Section 706B do have deadlines. Um, what, what about the other elements that, 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 have, that, that are required by the statute to be in the, in the, in the charge? Um, surely uh, the Commission has to serve notice of the charge, including the date, place, and circumstances of the alleged unlawful employment practice. Isn't that statutory provision implicitly a requirement that the charge contain the date, place, and circumstances of the alleged unlawful practice? I wouldn't go quite that far. The, the, the Commission's interpretation of that, which is embodied in Section 1601.12b, uh, uh, concludes that a charge is sufficient if it identifies the parties and contains a description of the alleged discriminatory practice. Well, how, how, can, how can the statute be complied with? I mean, the statute 2000E-5B clearly says that the Commission on receiving a charge shall serve a notice of it, paren, including the date, place, and circumstances of the alleged unlawful employment practice. Well, it, it, does, it does so provide, but it also provides that the that the charge shall contain the information and be in the form required by the Commission. The Commission does not require that particular information. Ordinarily, it could be inferred in practice. So you, you think the charge doesn't even have to, because uh, the Commission hasn't chosen to require that, a charge doesn't even have to contain the date, circumstances, and place of the alleged what, what Well, the Commission it, has. What does it have to contain? The regulation requires. I have been discriminated against? It, I understand the regulation to require more specificity than that. That, that question is not posed, of course, by this case. No one questions the specificity of the information in this letter. No, I, I understand that, but, but what you say about, about the requirement or, or non-requirement of, 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 of oath, uh, of, of it being under oath, I think you, you, you're going to have to logically say about other requirements, or, uh, as you think them, non-requirements of the charge. I, I don't see how, how the two don't go hand in hand. I, I think that you have to read 
Well, the, the Commission's view is that there is a, a, an irreducible minimum that has to be in a charge. You can't just file a piece of paper called that says charge and fill in the blanks later. Why? They, Why does it come to that position? It just made it up? The statute expressly provides that the Commission can specify what information needs to be in a charge, and that's the, that's the answer they've given. Not because there's any statutory uh, Compulsion, but just in its in its uh, wisdom and beneficence, the commission has decided that there has to be a certain minimal amount of information in the charge. Not not because I, the statute I, I don't implies know that there must be. Federal Register recounts any any explanation, but it seems to me it would be logical for the commission to have looked at that the provision to which you refer in 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 framing the the right. requirement. But if it looked at the provision to which I refer, it would say a charge has to. We're not going to bother an employer and require him to come back with a response, unless you, you haven't just come in and said, I've been discriminated against. We're not going to ask the employer, has this person been discriminated against? You tell us the date, the place, and the circumstances. Now, that's perfectly reasonable. But it seems to me also perfectly reasonable to say, moreover, we're not going to go and bother the employer and make the employer go through all the process of, of answering the charge unless you're serious enough about it that you've, you've sworn to it under oath, as the, as the statute requires. Well, what happens as a practical matter where verification occurs uh, after the filing date uh, is that the employer is usually not required to actually take any action. But here, what the employer wasn't even no- wasn't notified until the form on the EEOC's proper form that did everything, including the verification, you seem to have treated both the same way, that, that all that the imperfect charge did was stop the clock. But the EEOC didn't give notice to the employer at that point. That wasn't the charge, the form in which the charge went to the employer. As I understand it, the employer never got the form until it, it had been perfected. Um, Your Honor, it, it's our view that the, that, the court, that the EEOC erred in not providing notice at that time. And it's, I think it's clear from reading of the compliance manual that its own manual did require notice at that time. But in any event — And would also require notice of, 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 of a charge that was imperfect in other respects within 10 days of receiving the charge. So it gets it, it, a telephone, it, the, the requirement that it be in writing, for example. That's a requirement that isn't, isn't particularly in the, in the statute of limitations provision, but it's a requirement that it be in writing. So the Commission gets a phone complaint from somebody who says, my employer is discriminating against me. Now, you're, you're saying that the Commission should, within 10 days, the, contact the employer about that. The, it's our view that, that the, if the Commission receives a sufficient charge, it must do so. Um, the regulations do not contemplate that a phone call is a sufficient charge. Uh, they specify how it, that would have to be put in writing. This is all just a matter of the regulations. I mean, the Commission can, can just say, you know, this is sufficient or isn't it? This Commission could say that a phone call is sufficient. The, the, the statute requires that a charge be filed, so I think it would have to be reduced to writing. Ah, but I, uh, but I would the say word that, filed. Uh, but I would say the Commission probably could alter its, its, its regulation and deem a memorialized phone call um, uh, the filing of a charge. Okay, that's, th- those aren't the circumstances uh, uh, here. Um, and, and 
to, to get back to the specific issue before the Court, the Fifth Circuit, excuse me, the Fourth Circuit would have reached the same result in this case, regardless of whether this letter, a notice of this letter or the letter itself had been served on the employer uh, within 10 days of the receipt of the letter on November 14th. The decision below didn't rest on that. Even if there had been service and notice, the Court of Appeals would still have held the regulation was invalid. Uh, and, and it's the validity of that specific regulation that's the only question that the Court of Appeals uh, addressed. Mr. Snapper, do you agree that if you started out with Judge Ludic's position, he concurred and he raised four other. Did the EEOC consider this a charge? We don't know whether it did. Wouldn't the case have to go back so that the full Court of Appeals could examine those questions <coughs> on which Judge Ludic rested so that he ended up concurring rather than dissenting? Yes. Yes. The, so you, remains, those four questions are live and would have to be? It, it, it remains open to the, to the respondent to raise those issues on remand. And, and we think that that's the appropriate procedure. Thank you. For, for addressing them. Um, the, uh, as I was saying, specifically, uh, 706E1 uh, and 706B establish uh, separate uh, and distinct requirements. Um, in the terms of Chevron, the question is whether those two provisions read together clearly require, in an unambiguous manner, that verification happen before the charge filing deadline. We think uh, that, that such clarity certainly isn't present here. To the contrary, our view is that the most plausible reading of the statute um, is that verification could happen after the charge filing deadline. That's a particularly reasonable construction of the statute because that is the common law rule. That's do you, rule. Do you think it's good practice for the EEOC <clears throat> to wait until after the 300-day period and a verification before it even notifies the employer? No. No. They, it was in, in our view, it was improper to have done that here. That the, 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 uh, the statute doesn't authorize them to await verification. It is our understanding that is not their practice. It is not authorized by the compliance manual. The compliance manual does uh, identify some circumstances in which there might be delay in, in, in notification. Verification is not one of them. I mean, uh, suppose you have a statutory provision which says that uh, the complaint shall be in writing, uh, uh, sworn to under oath, uh, shall set forth the time, place, and circumstances of the uh, alleged grievance, comma, uh, and shall be uh, presented to the agency uh, within 100 days after the alleged grievance. Now, would you be taking the same position you take here, that that's a separate requirement? And yes. There Yes, uh, I, we would. You, you I, have any any? Well, I would never read a statute that way. I, I would certainly seem to me that uh, that what they're talking about uh, to be filed within a hundred days is what they have just described. And and you're, do you have I don't, cases of ours that well, that, 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 that that go that far. Uh, the federal rules require that a notice of appeal shall be in writing and shall be filed in a certain period of time. And yet, in Becker versus Montgomery, the court. Concluded that that didn't mean that an unsigned, that, that where the only document that was filed on time wasn't signed, that there was no timely notice of appeal. The uh, the and, and, and indeed, you know, the common law rule was that where a statute said a complaint must be verified 
and the complaint must be filed within a certain number of, of days or years, the, the, the uniform federal and state interpretation of that was that the lack of verification could be corrected after the expiration of the deadline. It seems to us that the Commission reasonably concluded that Congress would have not wanted a more stringent rule about relation back of verification to apply in the administrative process, a process ordinarily initiated by laymen unassisted by counsel, than would apply in civil litigation, uh, uh, where, which is much more formal, and which, uh, the, and the, you know, the, the common law rule about correcting verification after the fact applied uh, regardless of whether, as would normally be the case, uh, the, um, uh, the party involved uh, was represented by counsel. So we, we, we think the common law rule is a very important part of the background of the statute. In, in these other situations that you mentioned, does the court take action against a particular individual or require a response from a particular individual before the verification occurs? You see, that, 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 that seems to me the, the difference here, that you're, you're saying the Commission Within 10 days after re- receiving this unverified complaint, uh, has to submit it to the employer and ask the employer to respond to it. No, the, the, under the procedure established by Title VII, the, the employer is not required to respond just by virtue of getting notice. Notice simply alerts them to the filing of a charge. It is a separate step in the procedure for the agency to then require the employer to do anything in response. It's not like a complaint which requires an answer Uh, within so many days. It's simply a heads-up. Now, does the agency require verification to occur before it will demand a response from the employer? I think that would be the normal practice. Isn't that what the form that that EEOC sends out, as you described the procedure, is called Form 5 or whatever it is, that they send to the complainant, says, Sign, verify it, has everything to, to make the co- complaint perfect. And that's the form that is then sent to the employer. In this very case, that form was sent to the employer, but the imperfect form wasn't. That's, that's, that's what occurred here. Uh, but I'm thinking, if, if I didn't make a clear response to Justice Scalia's question, it's my understanding that the normal practice of the agency would be not to require the employer to do anything until a defect in form, such as a lack of verification, had been, uh, had been addressed. The statute simply gives the employer a heads-up, but doesn't — the notice simply gives and doesn't require the employer to do anything. But, it's not like a complaint. But, but meanwhile, the, the — um, uh, I mean, this, this could occur a very long time after the event occurred. I, so, I think — So long as the Commission waits that long to get the verification. I think right. not in practice. My understanding is that in practice, the Commission will ask for a verification. In fact, frequently they will ask for a Form 5, regardless of whether what's in the, the, the correspondence that reaches them. So all problems get solved. If you had an employee who refused to verify with reasonable promptness, uh, I th- the agency would undoubtedly uh, uh, dismiss the, uh, uh, the charge for lack of cooperation. That would be the end of it. If the, with the Court's leave, I'd like to reserve the balance of my time. Well, Mr. Schnapper, um, Ms. Blatt, we'll hear from you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Under the long-standing rule at common law, 
the failure to verify a complaint as required by statute may be cured by an amendment that relates back to a timely filed complaint. The Commission incorporated that rule by regulation in 1966, two years after the passage of Title VII. The contrary rule embraced by the panel will, would invalidate even the most detailed and well-pled complaint that was timely filed with the Commission but did not, was not verified until later. The common law rule ensures that substantive rights are not foreclosed when the essential elements of a complaint are sufficient to vest the Court with jurisdiction. But, but, but in this case, the, the agency doesn't treat it as a full charge until it's verified for purposes of notifying the employer. The agency seems to me quite inconsistent. Well, that's not I mean, you, 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 you want us to accept this argument as to what a charge is, but then you don't want us to accept it for when the employer has to know about it so the evidence doesn't go stale. It's not, that the, it's not that the agency is waiting for verification before it gives notice. And if the only thing missing from a charge is verification, the agency's procedures require notice within 10 days. Thus, the, the, if, a November, if a charge comes in like the November 14th letter that's not verified, the procedures require notice within 10 days. That wasn't done here, Justice Kennedy. The agency did not comply with its obligation to provide the employer with notice. But that in no way affects or undermines the validity of the relation back regulation, which doesn't relate to notice. It relates to whether a charge uh, is timely filed, even though it is not verified. Well, I but are, shouldn't the two be, be tied together? I mean, it's reasonable to have it relate back so long as there is no prejudice to the, to the employer from having it relate back. But when you say we're not going to give the employer notice until it's later verified, there is prejudice to the employer. Evidence is getting stale and so forth. But Justice Scalia, um, the, the agency's procedures required this employer to have notice whether or not the November 14th letter was verified, and the employer then can preserve its documents or, or respond to the charge or do, or do whatever it wants. The relation — say that that's a separate mistake, and whatever prejudice comes from that, the employer is free to raise on remand. Is that it? Yes, the issue of notice is what drove one of the, the key issues that drove Judge Ludig's concurrence, uh, which would have upheld the regulation and the majority's interpretation. Had the agency immediately hand-delivered this document to the employer, we'd still be here because the Fourth Circuit would invalidate the charge because it wasn't verified until day uh, uh, 313. Do you agree with Mr. Snapper that the agency just um, missed um, that they should have given to, for the purpose of giving giving notice, sent that unverified charge to the yeah, employer. Yes, absolutely. It was filed with the agency on receipt, and the an employer should have been notified within 10 days. And that wasn't done uh, until later. And we think the this argument would be open on remand with the consequences of the, of the untimely notice. But that untimely notice is a separate question from an untimely filing of an otherwise sufficient and valid charge. And this charge uh, — was filed within the 300-day period because it was received by the agency uh, on November 14th. And our point is that if the essential elements of the charge are sufficient to commit uh, to vest the commission with jurisdiction, um, the verification under, would, could be supplied later. And the rule at common law, which was well established in both state and federal courts by 1964, applied to lawyers in a formal pleading practice and judicial proceedings, and the Commission certainly acted reasonably in adopting the same rule where Congress anticipated that the charging parties are often unrepresented by counsel. And we don't think anything in the text of Title VII forecloses the Commission's regulation. 
Section 706B states that a charge must be verified, but it does not state when verification must occur. And Section 706E states that a charge must be filed within 300 days, but it doesn't state that the charge must be verified at the time it is filed. What about the argument that B comes before E, so to define what a charge is, the word charge, and then it's given a certain description in B, then when you get down to E, it retains that same description? Well, Title VII didn't define the word charge as a verified charge. It just said that it shall be verified. And certainly um, those don't — it's just the kind of ambiguity that would invoke the common law rule that the charge, a later, verif- a later verification, may relate back to the time of filing. So we don't think anything in, the, in this text comes close to uh, trumping what, what would be the common law uh, presumption. Uh, and as Judge Ludig observed, that there's not a single provision either by its effect or its terms that suggests that there's a limitations provision for verification. There's certainly one for filing, and there's certainly a 10-day notice period for the employer, but there's not a specific time period uh, when the verification must occur. And in the normal course of business, the agency will try to obtain a standard form whose signature line contains an affirmation, and so the verification requirement will be supplied. And if it's not, the agency will dismiss that charge and cease its investigation. And there's important consequences to that because the employee will not be able to pursue a claim for relief if he's not complied with the statutory requirement of verification. Can you tell me what happens if it's not this case? Uh, if there's a rule in the, in the circuits, I don't think we've passed on it. What happens if there's a, a verified complaint? The complaint is filed with the EOC in time. Then the EOC just sits on it and notifies the employer, say, 100 days late. Does the em, 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 employer, uh, must, must he show prejudice in, in before he can defend on the ground of late service, or how does that work? Yeah, we know of just a handful of cases where the charge just got lost in the system, and the consequences of that would turn on two factors. First, whether the employer uh, could, could show prejudice in its ability to defend the suit, and we think there's a second uh, constitutional question of, of whether the employee's rights could be foreclosed because the agency defaulted on its own statutory obligations. This Court's decision in um, Logan versus Zimmerman Brush would suggest that it cannot. But I don't — you wouldn't even need to get to that issue if the employer didn't show prejudice. And this Court in Shell Oil also discussed that the the Courts of Appeals had been uniform, that absent bad faith by the agency or prejudice to the employer in defending uh, his ability to defend the suit, that the employee's rights would not be prejudiced. If there are no more questions. Thank you, Ms. Blatt. Mr. Bell, we'll hear from you. In the Mahasco case, this Court taught uh, that the EEOC may not adopt regulations that are inconsistent with the statutory mandate. Uh, As we have held on prior occasions, its interpretations of the statute uh, cannot supersede the language chosen by Congress. And that's exactly what's happened here. Uh, The statute in 706B says that charges shall be in writing and under oath. Next, it's separated by an and. Uh, The statute goes on and says the the, the charge shall include uh, such information and be in such form uh, as the 
uh, EEOC uh, requires. What the EEOC has done here in its regulation is to say that a charge is sufficient so long as it's in writing. That's exactly what the regulation says. Uh, the uh, text of the, of the statute is simply inconsistent with that. Uh, what uh, the argument of, of the respondent is, is that there's no real linkage between uh, 706B, the use of the term 706B, where the charge shall be in writing and under oath, and 706E, which specifies that charges shall be filed within a certain time period. Uh, that's simply not so. Uh, if you look at the text of 706E, it says charges under this section, not under this subsection. It says charges under this section shall be filed within a certain period of time. So we're not dealing with two independent statutes here. We're dealing with two subsections of exactly the same section of the same statute that are joined at the hip. Judge Judge Ludic said that that was a very plausible argument. However, he said it was not the only plausible reading of these two discrete pieces of the same statute, and it was permissible for the agency to take the view that it did. That to prevail here, you have to show that the position that the agency took was impermissible, rather than, as Judge Ludic said, it is, maybe it's not the best choice, but it was a permissible reading of this less-than-crystalline statute. Uh, Justice Ginsburg, we don't believe uh, that that is a permissible reading of the statute. The language just doesn't work that way. Uh, The first time uh, Congress mentioned the term charge, which shall be in writing and under oath, uh, it it, uh, gave definition to the term. Uh, Justice Ludig uh, simply didn't uh, carry his analysis far enough. I don't think he mentioned, for example, the fact that 706E begins with charges under this section shall be filed within a certain period of time. It seems to me that the the reading that you are saying is the only proper reading is somewhat inconsistent with this Court's position in Becker against Montgomery last term. Justice Ginsburg, we we don't think so uh, because we think what happened in Becker uh, was uh, a, a harmonization of two rules of court uh, with a focus particularly on Rule 11, which in the same rule which established the requirement of the, of the signing, uh, established uh, the, the method to cure a failure to sign. That's a very important difference here. In this statute, there's absolutely no indication uh, of a of a uh, intention on the part of Congress to allow curing uh, the one thing, the oath and the signing, that they set apart from the delegation to the agency of authority to control, which was the form and content. I mean, just looking at the structure of the language, they, they, they emphasized oath, 
they applied it to commission charges, and they uh, separated it from the, the delegation of the authority to specify the form and content. In Becker, uh, again, the, the very thing that established the requirement for signing established the method of curing it. I That's think not we true. heard the argument from Mr. Snapper and Ms. Blatt that as a background common law principle, the, the idea of a curative amendment to provide a signature, to provide verification that then relates back is nothing new, so that what Congress wrote has to be read in the light of that background understanding. Yes, you must have a verification, but it can come later. Your Honor, I I believe that the uh, background principle, if you will, the background legal principle of our federalism and the background legal principle of due process to employers and fairness to employers in giving notice was probably more a part of the applicable legal background here. But that here was conceded. The, 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 the commission should have sent the um, imperfect charge. Employer doesn't have to answer it till he gets the perfected charge. So the, the function of no- notice is served. If the EEOC had done what it was supposed to do, and now it concedes that it should have sent that charge, and the employer isn't bothered with having to respond until he gets a perfected charge. Well, Your, Your Honor, the, the regulation here um, eliminates the filing deadline. I mean, there's no uh, time specified when uh, verification must occur. And there are uh, cases cited in amicus, uh, page 18 of the Equal Employment uh, Advisory Council, uh, where charges have never been verified. I mean, there's just no deadline. But that's not what anybody is urging here. They concede that there must be a verification. The question, as there was in this case, well, Your Honor, there were, the, the letter itself was never verified. Uh, there was a Form no, 5 that the, was verified. The proper, like an amended complaint. You know that people file complaints in court to get in under the deadline. And then they file an amended pleading, which relates back. That's standard. There's no indication that Congress here adopted common law pleading rules. In fact, the legislative history makes it pretty clear that Congress meant to circumscribe the right that they created in Title VII. Uh, you have a question, Mr. Bell. Your opponent's descriptions of the common law pleading background that uh, a complaint that was, was required by rule to be verified, filed, not verified, could be verified later? Uh, there are certainly many cases that hold that. Uh, there's no question about that. But, but here we're dealing with, with Congress creating a right uh, that they uh, struck a careful balance in. And as this Court has said, uh, Congress specified uh, certain procedures uh, as a compromise and that the best uh, assurance of, of uh, 
uh, administrative fairness is to insist on the procedures that Congress put Mr. Bill, may I ask, uh, going back to Justice Scalia's questions earlier, the statute requires that the charges shall be in writing under oath or affirmation and shall contain such information and be in such form as the Commission requires. And then later they prove the date, place, and circumstances of the practice and so forth. Supposing a charge is filed that's kind of a skeleton, has, maybe doesn't really describe the place adequately, and the Commission says to them, you have not complied with the requirement of giving enough information, we require an amendment. Would the charge be untimely in your view, or would it be because it did not contain all the information the Commission required, and literally the statute requires that? Uh, yes, Your Honor. I don't think the Commission has the power to uh, change the statute of limitation. So that if they if they add a requirement of more information after there is a filing, they would also be deciding that the original charge was uh, was untimely. Well, and in this case, Your Honor, that's exactly what they did. I mean, they it, it, there's no question that in this case the EEOC did not regard what had been filed as a charge. Right, and, they and, kept and, writing letters to that effect. They kept telling the petitioner. You got to file. You got to do something. You'd also have to say, Mr. Bell, that uh, that since the uh, uh, complaint or the charge has to be under the statute in such form as the commission shall prescribe, you'd also have to say that if the, if the charge was filed on uh, um, nine by twelve paper and the uh, and the commission had prescribed eight and a half by twelve, that it's ineffective, right? Uh, yes, Your Honor. Um, I, I think that's what the statute contemplated. Uh, I think any any little any uh, little I, footfault I, I, uh, would uh, any sorry. little footfault would uh, would render it ineffective. I mean, any any I think that that, that any little technical detail that uh, that wasn't exactly as the commission's rule. If was it was required. required by the commission, I think that's what the statute says. Mr. Of course, Powell, we're not dealing be, with a technical that, detail. Wouldn't that here. be totally yeah. inconsistent with? What Congress envisioned, that is, these complaints with the EEOC were not going to be filed by lawyers, lawyers who have leeway to amend under the federal rules. These were going to be filed by lay people who didn't know anything, maybe not even know what the word verification means. And yet you think that Congress erected a structure where that initial complaint had to be more meticulous than what the federal rules require a lawyer's pleading? To say filed in court, that would be very. Uh, the statute, the statute seems to indicate that with respect to the at least with respect to the oath and writing requirements. I mean, there's no uh, if if the EEOC can eliminate the oath requirement, uh, they'll be here next year, not perhaps the eliminating question, the writing. The question is when, not whether. They're not. They haven't eliminated it. It's a question as it was in Becker. Yes, you have to sign the notice of appeal, but you don't have to do it within time that the, the statute of limitations is But you do have to do it with the, in the method and in the time set out in Rule 11. There is no analogous uh, provision in this statute. What was filed in the Court of Appeals within the time that you had to file the notice lacked a signature. Yes. And that's the same thing that's here within the 3,300 days. And then after, say here it was 313 days, same thing with the notice of appeal. The, ver the signature was supplied some days later. 
but after the timeline. So I frankly don't see the difference in the two. Well, we, we see a fundamental difference between this Court harmonizing rules over which this Court has control and the Court deciding whether to apply requirements uh, set out uh, in a statute uh, that Congress uh, used to create a certain right. Uh, when Congress knew, when Congress wanted to authorize a gap, uh, you're, you're not asserting that our reading of our own rules is unreasonable, are you? Uh, no, Your Honor. Well, that if our reading of our rules isn't unreasonable, and this agency has simply read the statute the way we read our rules, then I assume that this agency's reading of the statute is not unreasonable, and that's all that Chevron or whatever has replaced Chevron requires. Your Honor, there are two reasons we don't think Chevron is the correct uh, — Chevron would uphold this uh, regulation. Number one, uh, there, there's, there's no delegation of authority to control uh, the writing and, and the s- signing requirement here. That's clearly separated in the statute. Uh, when, when the EEOC uh, wanted to create a gap, it knew how to do it. And it did it by saying you have the right uh, to specify the form and content of the rule. They didn't do that here. Secondly, this isn't a reasonable interpretation uh, of, of the statute itself. It's inconsistent with ordinary rules of statutory construction. Uh, we think it uh, really unravels the statutory scheme. It, does, it, it eliminates uh, the time filing requirement, the timely filing requirement. Uh, under, the de- under the regulation, there's simply no, no deadline for filing a verified complaint. It, it undercuts, again, not only the oath requirement, but the writing requirement. There's simply no intellectually honest way to separate uh, an EEOC regulation that says an oath is technical and can be uh, fixed after the filing deadline, but a writing uh, is not technical. Uh, there's no intellectually honest way uh, to do that. Um, the same reasoning that, that, that supports the petitioner's argument with respect to oath applies to, to the writing requirement. Finally, we think it undercuts uh, the, the policy of conciliation in the statute, because, in fact, the, the technical regulation, the, 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 EO, the, the uh, Solicitor General in his brief uh, says, and this is in the brief in the uh, uh, urging the, the Court to take cert, pages 16 and 17, uh, that the charge is sworn to or affirmed before the employer is required to take any action. Uh, we, we don't think we've misunderstood what the agency's practice is. It's certainly been our experience that you don't get a notice of any kind until you get uh, a verified notice. Uh, that is the practice in that was that was what happened in this case. Uh, the the solicitor general, in, at least in its earlier briefs, suggested that that was uh, precisely the practice that they followed here. So we think that ultimately the regulation also undercuts the policy in the statute for prompt uh, notice to the employer, which again 
undercuts the policy of conciliation. That's well, the, 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 government, the government has asserted that that's not the case. And I, I, if that — if I, I, I think we, we, we have to accept that unless you have solid evidence to the contrary, that, that in fact they think the notice — is normally given and should have been given when here, when the uh, when the charge was received. Even they have said that perfect. today. I, I and I, of yeah. course, saw their well. Unless you know for sure that, and I agree with you that if 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 that is not the policy, and if if they're being inconsistent in viewing it as a charge for one purpose but not as a charge for another purpose, then then we have a different problem. But I don't know that we can decide the case on the on, on the basis of. Uh, uh, simply your, your, your guess that the, the judgment that the government may not be accurate in, in what the policy is. Well, I, again, I, I refer the Court to the uh, government's brief uh, in support of amicus, uh, of, of, sorry, of granting the writ, pages uh, uh, 16 and 17. Uh, I would also uh, uh, urge the Court to look at page 22, of the government's brief. Mr. Uh, Bell, a lawyer representing the government made a representation before the court this morning that the EEOC should have immediately sent that charge to the employer. I think we must take that to be the government's position. That does, I mean, well, I, I'm not arguing with that. I'm just pointing out that that seems inconsistent with what the Solicitor General's earlier briefing said in this case. Um, that, that, that's the way we read it. That's the way Amicus read the government's own brief. Well, now it's clarified what its position is. I, I understand. The, if there is a, um, a hardship created by applying the rule, uh, the statute of limitations, uh, it's no different from the hardship that always occurs when, it's, when someone falls outside the statute of limitations. And this Court's opinion in Zipes exists for a reason, and that's to give relief if someone, uh, for good cause, uh, making out uh, a good claim for equitable tolling, uh, does uh, have, have a basis for, for arguing that the statute shouldn't be applied to him. This Court has ruled that the timely filing of the charge is not jurisdictional, and as a consequence, uh, is subject to equitable tolling. And courts uh, who have, which have applied this rule as it's written, I mean, sorry, the statute as it's written, have resorted to equitable tolling uh, when uh, the, the uh, uh, circumstances uh, uh, suggested that that was appropriate uh, to do. Mr. Bell, this was a deferral case. This was a 300 day case because of the state agency. Yes, Justice. Do we know whether, in this case, anything had been done at the state agency level? Uh, Your Honor, the charge was not sent to the state until it was put under oath. Just so like that it was same, the, the same formal, whatever they called it, Form X, when it was sent to the employer, was also sent to the state agency? That's correct, after the statutory deadline. That was the, that's the only involvement uh, the state agency had in this. And again, when you fall on the wrong side of a statute of limitations, it's always going to seem harsh to you. Uh, but if, if a limitations is to have any meaning whatsoever, you, you need to enforce it. Is, uh, is the uh, apparent uh, 
inconsistency between the, what the government says at page 16 of the uh, uh, brief in, in support of granting the petition um, and its representation here, explained by the fact that on page 16, the government says the complaint must be the charge must be verified before it requires a response. I, I but then see there is that. another requirement for simply notifying the employer that the charge has been made. It seems to me that uh, the the only requirement in the handbook that we saw. I mean, the the, the handbook that was filed uh, that we received on Friday does not mention oath at all. I mean, we we have looked at it, and there's no mention of oath whatsoever. Uh, so it's it's very difficult to know. Um, you know, the, the, the role of the oath playing. The handbook also says that the only circumstance where you have to give notice of a charge prior to the time uh, that, that the uh, uh, charge is, is uh, perfected, I think, is the term that they use. I mean, they, the, 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 the regulations talk about perfected charges, charges. They talk about potential charges. I mean, they're, they're really all over the map. I mean, they, in terms of establishing a bright-line rule, uh, this is just the opposite. Uh, they establish a fuzzy-line rule uh, in, in their regulations. But the only time, uh, Your Honor, that the, they mention um, giving notice of a charge is if it's within 15 days uh, of the expiration of the filing deadline. That, that's the only reference I was able to follow. And it's also quite interesting that in. I don't understand what you say. If they only it's, get notice of the charge if the charge is received within 15 days of the. As I read this uh, manual yeah. that, that was just served on, served on us on Friday, uh, that's, that's exactly what it says. That's the only circumstance I can see. Um, the uh, where where they will give notice of an unperfected charge. Yes, if it's considered a minimally what they call a minimal minimally sufficient charge. They won't give notice unless the charge is received Within, right up at the end of the deadline. Uh, that that is the way I read the, the, this handbook. I think it's also interesting where, in looking at the handbook, Your Honor. Uh, you have a section of the handbook where that's. Uh, I think it's it. Yes, sir. I think it's on, it's in section 2.1. It looks like on page 915.001, Your Honor. And it's special procedure, Title VII and ADA. When it is clear, that, that's not a page. You got to give me another page. I, I, page is down the bottom. Two dash nineteen. Two dash one. Two dash one. Let me try that. Uh, is what what I have, and it would be section two point two a one. It's what what happens when the EEOC receives a charge by mail, and as I understand uh, that, it's only when it's within 15 days of the deadline that they send notice of the charge to the employer. 
Your Honor, I think it's all, or Your Honors, uh, it, it's also significant looking at 2.5A3 uh, of this handbook on amending charges that the agency's own uh, manual mentions nothing about amending to add uh, verification, nothing. Uh, they talk about amending to cure the common law sort of uh, problem, Justice Ginsburg, not the, not the oath. In. What you have just said uh, suggests that this compliance manual is, is in need of amendment, but the compliance manual, unlike the regulation that we have, is not something that gets Chevron deference. This has not gone through any kind of notice. I understand. And this, of course, this regulation was not passed with uh, notice and comment rulemaking either, which under the Meade decision gives it uh, less weight uh, than it might have if if the regulation. I thought Congress authorized the EEOC to make procedural rules, didn't it? Uh, They did. And that's what these are, the relation back rule. Well, the, uh, Your Honor, I suppose we, we, we lawyers could differ on uh, whether it's a procedural or substantive rule, whether it's procedural or substantive. Well, what would you call Rule 15C of the Federal the Rules of Civil Procedure? Uh, 15C of the Federal Rules of Civil yes. Procedure? Is that a rule of procedure, the relation back rule? Uh, I, yes, Your Honor, it is. Well, I'm, I'm not sure that me does, does – I don't does does Mead say that uh, that even rules adopted without notice and comment are entitled to Chevron deference so long as they were authorized? I mean, I thought all rules had to be authorized, whether, whether they do notice and comment or not. What difference does it make whether this statute authorizes the uh, uh, the issuance of these procedural rules? You make the point that they weren't adopted by notice and comment, which is what uh, Mead says is the only really safe harbor. So they were authorized. I mean, all rules have to be authorized. I mean, that's, well, that's the starting point, isn't it? And one of the problems with this rule is that there's no delegation of authority to the agency to define the term charge, which is in essence what they've done. And they've defined it as something other than what, what, what Congress has said, which is something that's in oath, uh, under oath, and in writing. Uh, that's the problem. Uh, again, and I agree, it, it, it doesn't make any difference what procedures use if they've, if they've overstepped the bounds and have interpreted the statute in a way that's inconsistent with what the statutory language requires. That's what we think they've done here. And again, the EEOC itself did not view what was filed as a charge under their own regulations, under uh, under the statute that it exists. I think uh, that, that uh, uh, is significant. The EEOC doesn't need to change the statute in order to help claimants. They can follow the statute and tell claimants, you need to put your uh, complaint in, in, in writing and you need to put it under oath. Uh, all we're talking about is a declaration. Uh, the EEOC's failure to do that, uh, which apparently uh, uh, they do fail to do, uh, should not be laid at the door of the uh, respondent. And again, equitable tolling is available under Zipes 
any time uh, an unfair result uh, is reached. Uh, and that, that's the way these problems uh, should be solved. But just because equitable tolling is appropriate in some cases does not mean this Court should grant uh, the EEOC the right to pass a basically a prophylactic rule that, that says uh, but how would you distinguish from the point of view of the claimant who is filing the original charge, sends a letter as here, and then the EEOC, if it was super efficient, would have gotten out the, the form in good time? It did in this case, Your Honor. They, the, the, this man had the form within the 300 days. He's the one who sat on it. How many days did he have left? Uh, he had it for approximately a month, at least three weeks. Thank uh, you, Mr. Bell. Mr. Schnapper, you have five minutes remaining. Thank you, Your Honor. The compliance manual in this case squarely supports the representation that the government has made today with regard to its practice. The relevant provision is at the bottom of page uh, 2-1, um, it is Section 2.2B, and it states, when the correspondence contains all the information necessary to begin investigating, which is clearly true here, constitutes a clear and timely request for EEOC to act and does not express concerns about confidentiality or retaliation, acknowledge the correspondence by using a form letter and, and serve a copy of the document on the respondent. Now, the absence of any reference to verification is critical. It is simply not a prerequisite to this command to agency officials. The manual is crystal clear and entirely consistent with what the government has said. In addition, there are cases in which the government, which the EUC, has indeed served non-verification. Manuals say about verification, uh, later verification. I don't believe the manual addresses it. It is not relevant to the commands of the manual as to when well, service one, one might infer that then that uh, uh, post-filing verification is, is not authorized. It's expressly authorized by the regulation in this case. The man, I don't know, know that the manual reiterates what's in the regulation. The regulation is crystal clear. There's not a dispute here as to what the, whether the regulation authorized this, this particular practice. There are indeed cases in which the, the EEOC has served non-verified charges uh, you'll find examples of that in the Philbin and Price cases, which are mentioned in the cert petition. With regard to the applicability of Chevron, uh, we are in agreement with Justice Scalia that the presence or absence of notice and comment rulemaking is not relevant. Uh, if that were critical, then Chevron deference wouldn't apply to most procedural regulations, which don't require notice and comment rulemaking. That would surely stand everything on its head. Justice O'Connor correctly pointed out in the commercial office products case that deference to procedural uh, interpretations by an agency are particularly appropriate. In addition, it in fact happened that there was notice and comment rulemaking in this case with regard to these regulations in 1977. The sites of that are in the amicus brief filed by the EEAC. The question here, as Justice Ginsburg noted, is not whether a charge has to be verified but when. The, regu the statutory language is not clear. It could reasonably have been read by the agency to require verification prior to the applicable deadline. If the agency had written that regulation, it would have properly have to have been upheld under Chevron. Uh, 
but the, the statutory language was ambiguous, and this is precisely the circumstance under which, under Chevron, the resolution of that matter should be left to the agency. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Schnapper. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.